Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking sand Today's scripture reading uh, is from Nehemiah 9, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord, their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenanai. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord, their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshebniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Gerashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is David. Uh, for those of you who are new, I'm very glad to have you uh, with us this morning. Uh, just because uh, this is a unique week for us in the life of the city, in the life of, of this nation, uh, let me just uh, begin this sermon uh, with a short prayer. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are very aware uh, of this time of year, and we, we recognize um, that this is a, a, a season of a tremendous anxiety and uh, where many of us are, are quite nervous about this week. Lord, we just pray for your protection, your peace over this nation. We pray for a peaceful election. Lord, we'd also uh, pray that um, whether there's a transition of power or not, uh, that we would um, trust uh, in greater degrees in your sovereignty, uh, in your love for your creation. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us all that we need to move uh, forward as faithful witnesses of your love and your mercy past November 3rd. Uh, so I pray that for us as a community, I pray for this city um, uh, for the, in this week. And of course, I pray for this nation. Uh, Lord, I also lift up this nation in regards to COVID-19 as we look at the numbers, as numbers are spiking, as there are pretty dire um, estimates to, uh, of, of cases and death toll, Lord. We mourn and we grieve. 
We pray uh, for the doctors and the essential workers. We pray for the economy. We pray uh, for all those making decisions, Lord. Uh, would you um, be the hands and feet uh, of the people who are working and serving? And Lord, I pray that your wisdom would, would prevail. And I pray, Lord, that this community and all the communities of this nation who are affected with the loss of life, that we would grieve as those who, who know you and would grieve, grieve deeply with people. Uh, so Lord, uh, we also lift up um, the life and family of Walter Wallace Jr. Um, as they grieve uh, this past week and, and, and his death uh, and the injustice that seems to be uh, surrounding that situation. So Lord, uh, you know our hearts. Um, we're not so articulate when it comes to these things. But Lord, um, would you bless uh, our, our prayers? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So good morning. Uh, let me just get our hearts or our heads maybe in both in the right place. The, the title of the sermon really is kind of the best things in life cause us to confess. Uh, the title is stand and confess. But what's the motivation for that? Well, the premise is, is that the best things in life cause us actually to confess. Um, you know, the last maybe a few years ago, there was uh, an ad campaign by the Metropolitan Museum of Art in which they were running ads of all kinds of uh, notable people. And one of them was Seth Meyers. And in one of the posters that was on the subway, Seth Meyers confessed. He said, you know, I often think there's nothing more artistic than a well-written joke. And then it says, then I go to the Met and I remember I'm an idiot. Uh, and what he's simply saying there with that phrase is what most people feel when they go to the Met. You know, they, uh, no matter who they are, no matter what they've accomplished, when you step into the presence of timeless beauty, uh, you are compelled to praise. You're compelled to praise the artist. You're compelled to praise the art. You're compelled to praise the moment. And of course, that's true, whether it's a painting or you're standing in front of the Grand Canyon or you're you're con contemplating a relationship. Uh, we begin to praise that something so true, so good, so beautiful actually exists. Uh, so we praise out of seeing something good, but a natural part of that experience is that we begin to confess uh, how far that we often fall short of, of this particular standard of beauty, of excellence, of goodness, uh, of perfection. And out of that feeling like we've that we are not living up to these particular standards we feel inspired and we yearn to live life more beautifully and so over the last couple of weeks we've been last eight weeks we've been going through this series on Nehemiah and we've tracked his experience returning to a city in need with our experience of returning to a city in need and so we see him uh, return to Jerusalem to rebuild this wall. And we're, of course, in many ways, either physically or mentally returning to this city of New York that we love that's in, in such need. And we're seeing what it looks like for him to recommit to the city. And of course, we're experiencing what it looks like to recommit to the city. And all of this is taking place within, you might say, a season of renewal, you know, hopefully a season of spiritual renewal. That's what we're calling ourselves to but also maybe a season of renewal for us to begin to reimagine what it looks like to, to live here in, in this city. And, you know, we hope and we pray that things come back to as much as normal 
as possibly can, but we also hope and pray that we never go back to the status quo. Now we recognize that though we love this city, there's a lot of brokenness uh, systemically, uh, personally here in the city, and we wanna be a part of a renewing experience. And of course that takes a lot of reimagining what uh, that might look like, what, what life looks like for us uh, now in this city that we love and in a city that's in great need. And so over the next three weeks, we're gonna do just that. We're gonna focus on uh, how Nehemiah reimagines life for him in Jerusalem after they've rebuilt this wall. So what does it look like for uh, us to do that, to consider the ways that we used to live and to consider what it, would, what it might look like to turn to something new? Now, contrary to popular opinion, it is not feelings of guilt. It's not feelings of shame or boredom or even frustration that bring a person to confession and bring a person to repentance, but rather it's the most beautiful things in life that inspire us towards change. And so let's look at that idea in three particular ways. The Israelites, having stood before the goodness of God, the glory of God, and, and uh, having worshiped, uh, what we see them do here is they stand and they confess, they stay and they repent, and then they rest in his security. So stand and confess, stay and repent, and rest in his security. First, they stand and confess. They've just spent time worshiping, before the goodness of God, and now they're compelled to confess. But as one might expect, um, they don't do so in a way that you and I might. They don't do so in a corner. They don't do so privately. They do just the opposite. In fact, they demonstrate their sin quite boldly. And they do that both in word, as you see there in verse four, they, they cry out to the Lord. And they do that indeed. And they do that indeed in three very countercultural, very public ways. And the first way that we're going to talk about is they exchange their respectable clothing for sackcloth. Now, what is sackcloth? Sackcloth was a rough, it was a very uncomfortable, it was a very unappealing fa fabric. It was kind of like a potato sack. It was like a gunny sack. Um, what they're showing is um, they're exchanging their respectable clothes for the bare minimum. So what they're trying to convey is that spiritually speaking, they're not rich. They're not even middle class that spiritually speaking, their account is empty. Here they are, the people of God, rich in abundance, and yet spiritually speaking, they're saying we're busted. We know we're bankrupt. And so they dress on the outside what they recognize to be true on the inside. And they do it boldly. They stand and confess. The second thing that they do is they put dust and dirt on their heads. Um, which is an interesting idea. Uh, basically what they're saying is that they have, they've, they have, in a sense, lived lives building monuments to their own self-importance. Uh, they've placed dust on their heads as a way to recognize that they've built their lives on all the wrong things. They've built their lives on money or status or power, or politics or sexuality. Uh, they've built their lives on their own ethnicity uh, or perhaps their own religiosity, but now they're standing before, having stood before the goodness of God in worship, standing before his glory, standing before his, his might, and they realize um, their own frailty, their own weakness. They stand before this eternal being, and they realize that they're just simply dust. It's a reality check. In light of his eternal presence, they really 
feel uh, in their innermost being the truth. And that is their, uh, that is their temporary nature. And that apart from him, apart from him breathing life into them, that their lives are meaningless, that their lives are not important at all, that they're just simply dust. And without him to dust, in a sense, you might say, they will return. Like the reality of God is such that without his presence, that we're nothing. That's what they're saying. So they wear sackcloth. They put earth on uh, dust on their head as a sign of their need for God to breathe life and give them meaning in life. But, but lastly, and first, it's mentioned first, they separate themselves from the rest of society. Now, why do they do this? Well, let's be honest. You know, when we think of religious groups and particular stories where they're getting all worked up and they, they're getting very excited, why are they usually getting excited? You know, they come into the center of the town and what do they tend to do? They tend to point fingers uh, at other people for personal and political reasons. And the kinds of things that these excited religious people do when they're thinking about confession or repentance is they're pointing their fingers and they're saying, you're not worthy. You're not worthy of the, of the, the glory of God, but that's not at all what we see here in the Bible. Here in the book of Nehemiah, the Israelites, they've removed themselves from the rest of the community. And it is a visible demonstration. It is a public act of repentance. Here they're saying, we recognize in front of the whole town, we're the problem. We're the immoral ones. We're the corrupt ones. We are not good for you. It's not, a, it's not you, it's us. We're not worthy. So we see these three things before God and man. We see the Israelites reveal what is going on um, inside their hearts by displaying it on the outside. And so, friends, uh, you know, just to prove, uh, demonstrate the point, there is nothing uh, that shows us better our faults, our weaknesses, our inconsistencies how we treat one another. There's nothing that inspires us to grow and change better than standing in the presence of goodness and beauty. And if that is true of a painting, if that is true of standing in nature, then how much more is that true of standing uh, before the goodness and the glory of God? You know, C.S. Lewis said the sweetest thing in all of his life has been his longing to find the place where all the beauty comes from. So if you and I, as New Yorkers, if we want to reimagine our roles here in the city, then a good way to do that is discover that source of beauty and recognize that beauty is God. And that uh, it will make our relationship to the city, it'll make our relationship to art, it'll make our relationship to nature, and our, it'll make our relationship uh, to our own selves that much richer, that much more deep. Uh, It'll give, it, give us that much more meaning. And it'll change the way that you take part in confession. So first, the goodness of God makes them stand and it makes them confess, but it also makes them stay and repent. You know, Martin Luther said that all of life is repentance. And as we begin to talk about it, perhaps you'll see why. In verse three, it says they stood there for four hours listening to the scriptures read. And as they heard of the goodness, God, the goodness of God, they continued to worship. And then for another four hours, they stayed still standing 
they stayed and they confessed. And this is uh, a sign, not just of confessing, but I, I believe this, you know, this really hits the mark of something more. This has all the marks of, of repentance. And there's a difference between confession and repentance. So confession is simply recognizing, it's simply articulating the truth of what you've done that goes against God's design for human flourishing, what you've done that goes against God's decrees and desires for your life, how you've broken his law and broken his heart. That's what it is to confess, to simply articulate that truth aloud. But repentance, repentance is the act, act of actually turning and walking away from those motivations, those patterns in our lives. Con confessing is to simply say, like, I told a lie. But repentance is out of a love of God and out of a growing hatred of that pattern in your life, a growing hatred of that sin that we commit to to, to, you might say, studying that sin, to not practicing it, not furthering it, but studying it also that we can deconstruct it so that we can disempower its hold on our lives. Uh, so we can uh, understand better how it has a power on us and how the need to tell a lie often feels uh, more comfortable than telling the truth. So, the act of repentance is a process in which we study our motivations for sin and the patterns both inside and outside us that can compel us to go against God's design for us uh, in terms of human flourishing. And so we simply ask some real good questions like what are the in internal motivations for why I might tell a lie, shall we say? Or what are the outside pressures that are, are making it so that I feel like I'm powerless to tell the truth or, or the things that I want in the world are, uh, I want them so much that I'm afraid to tell the truth. Um, when do we tend to, to fall into these particular patterns of sin? What time of week is it? I mean, wh what are the circumstances that feel so overwhelming that I repeatedly walk into them? And of course, what makes it more comfortable for us to tell a lie than, than to live out the truth? In other words, repentance is... Um, to mortify our sin. Now, mortification is a word meaning uh, to bring about death. And of course, many of us know of, of, of a book called Mortification of Sin by, the, by the, the great writer, theologian, John Owen. And he famously said, when it comes to the sin in our life, we need to, we, we need to be about killing the sin or it will be about killing us. So how do we do that? Confession and staying in our repentance. Now, when I say staying our repentance, I, I don't mean like staying in the sin, right? But I mean, not moving past the sin. And Owen would say this too. You don't move past a particular sin after you've committed it because you simply want to get away. Because you simply want to move away from it. But to stay and remain in, in your sin is to, is to, again, like I said, study it, but to say, I'm actually, well, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but to, to stay in it and to study it to the degree that you understand it so that it, that you have greater power over it than it has over you. So what do they do? They stay in their sin. And the reason I think that they, I can say that is because they moved from just their, away from their present sort of pain 
I think they're moving through their sort of anxiety and the anxiousness, you might say, that comes with knowing this pain is going to cause them greater discomfort in the future. But now they're working backwards and they're moving and thinking about studying their past, not just their own personal past, but the past of their ancestors. So they stay and repent in order to repair what their ancestors did. So not just standing and confessing, but staying and repenting, they're able to recognize and acknowledge past hurts, past harms that their forefathers have done. And they do that in order to bring healing, not only to their own lives and to understand greater, to greater degrees their own motivations, but they do that in order to bring healing to the people that surround them. That's another reason why they've, they've pulled themselves apart because they need to learn and grow and understand so that when they come back, into the culture, you might say, that they do so in helpful ways. So staying and repenting also means that as they understand their sin, they break their solidarity with the sins of their ancestors. They recognize that being raised in an environment of sin, that, that they're now susceptible to believing and repeating those very same sins. Not because they must, uh, they don't have to do it that way, but because they recognize their environment makes it just that much more easier. It makes the decisions easier to fall into these same sort of patterns of brokenness and inhumanity. It makes sin almost a logical choice to make. But what they're doing is they're staying, they're considering their sin, they're analyzing, dissecting, dissecting it, deconstructing it, and essentially disempowering it. And it's only in breaking the solidarity of that sin that they're able to begin to reimagine what life looks like when they're free. What life looks like when they're free of the sins of their forefathers, the sins of their own personal past. This is powerful. So um, what's interesting here about this, the, the text is that they don't tell us exactly what their particular sins were. But that's, in some sense, the beauty of, of coming to the Bible. In some, some places, it's so utterly specific. In other places, it's general. Why? Because there's, there's commonality between every culture and every time and place. And so it frees you and I to read this passage and to know that what was common to them in terms of their sin is common to us, too. That these sins were not that dissimilar. Yes, uh, they spoke a different language. Yes, they wore different clothing. But the systemic nature of sin remains. So you can be sure that they struggled with the things that New Yorkers struggled with, with greed and selfishness, uh, with hatred, with anger, with, with sexual immorality, with uh, the sins of ethnocentricity, ethnocentric, ethnocentricity, and of course, the self-righteousness that comes with their own religiosity. Now, why is this so important? Well, it's, it's almost too obvious to even say, isn't it? How can we, as a community, be a community, be in a, a, a people in a time of tremendous division, be it a community of, of healing and a community that champions unity? Well, confession, standing and confessing boldly, not quietly in a corner, boldly wearing the clothes, if you will, of humility, understanding our own frailty, our own, um, you know, our own temporariness. Being able to, uh, you know, hold our opinions uh, rightly, but not too tightly. Uh, to be 
agents of, of, of healing and unity here in the culture. And there's no better way to do that than to boldly confess our own personal sin and the sins of our ancestors before the world. There's no better way to, to do that than to stay and learn about our own foibles, our own flaws, um, and, to, and to simply own that as a, a community and be filled, you, you might say, uh, as a community uh, with humility. So Nehemiah shows us that the people of God have been repenting of sy systemic sin and injustice for at least 3,000 years. So let's not stop now. And let's also re remember, see and remember that there's a tremendous distinction between what we normally think of, of religious confession and what's taking place here. Because when people think of religion and they think of confession, they think I'm going to God to confess my sins, to appease him so that he just continues to bless me. But that's not here. That's not what's going on. Here we have a God who says, I, I've blessed you. And out of my goodness, you're so inspired to change that you just simply fall in line with how I've created you to be. It's a completely different dynamic. So we have the first two points, stand and confess. They stand and confess out of the goodness of God and then they stay and repent because they wanna grow and they wanna change to bring healing, not only to their own lives, but to those around them. And then, of course, how do you begin to go do that? How do you do that? Well, you need to rest in the security that comes with the God of the Bible, in the security that comes with Jesus Christ. Um, doing this kind of work, working on your interior life, is a long process, and it's a painful process. Uh, oftentimes, you feel like you are not growing. But the promise of God is that he will see you through to the end. The promise of God is that he will help you grow and change more and more into the image of his son. But the process is painful and it takes time. So therefore, as you do it, you have to be utterly secure in the goodness of God. Last night, as a part of a Halloween, uh, um, not celebration, but for Halloween, we watched uh, a couple scary movies. And they were so scary that, you know, we needed to have the lights on at times. And there were times where it wasn't safe, you might say, to, to walk into the darkness of the back bedroom. But, you know, John Owen says that is, um, that's what it's like to, to take on your own personal sin. He says, apart from the light of God and part of the, apart from the knowledge of the goodness of God, to confront your sin is actually pretty, is too scary. It's too challenging that if we really saw how broken we actually are, if we really saw how we contribute to the pain of this world, then we'd be paralyzed by it. But there's a way through, and that is simply to recognize the goodness of God and the God who is, who is utterly committed to you, despite how broken you and I actually are. Uh, we see that here. Notice in the prayer, you know, we don't have all of the prayer, but in the tail end of this passage that we've read, we have the beginnings of what is the longest prayer in the Bible, and that's why we didn't print it all. But it's the beginning of, of the story of, of how God has worked through a community of people over time. It's called the beginning of redemptive history. It's a redemptive historical prayer. And it starts by giving praise to the God of the Bible, the God who created the heavens, the God who 
who uh, set the stars in place, the, the Lord who breathes life into everything. So he's the God of creation, but notice that he transitions into the story of Abram. And so what uh, uh, Nehemiah is doing is he's saying, this same God of creation is also the God of recreation. And that is what the story of Abram's all about. The story of Abram was a man who was comfortable in his life. He was secure in his own family, in his own culture. He was secure in the, in, in the habits of his life. And yet God called him out of that. God recreated his story and gave him tremendous promise, tremendous promises. However, in following God, Abraham's trust was never in, his, in himself. It was never in his own ability. It was never in his own ancestry, right? And he didn't do it perfectly, but he did it in such a way that time and time again, God continued to pick him up, that he, rest, he rested not in his own, his own ability, but he rested in the, good, the goodness of the Lord and the grace that God extended to him. He didn't trust, um, uh, he trusted in the God who out of, uh, his own righteousness, the God, his own, uh, God's own righteousness, he kept his promise. Now, the ultimate, the Christian would say the ultimate uh, way that we see the faithfulness and the promises of God fit, fulfilled are in Jesus Christ. And in so many ways, Nehemiah is a picture of that. And in so many ways, Abram is a picture of that. And we see some of those examples here. You know, Jesus, uh, was one who came to earth, right? And what did he do? Why did he do? Why did he come to the earth? Would the scriptures say that he came to earth to stand, to stand, uh, to fight against sin? See, Jesus doesn't confess sin, but he comes to deal with sin in the exact same way. And so he stands before God, but he doesn't stand to confess his own sin. He stands to represent ours. And when he's on the cross, he's there, and he's not there in regular respectable clothing. No, he, the clothing of Christ was ripped off of him. How poor spiritually was he uh, on the cross, spiritually speaking? You know, the sins of mankind were thrust upon him, you might say, on the cross. So he represented the utter spiritual poverty of mankind. He was so poor, he didn't even have a, a sackcloth. He stood there naked, revealed. He stood there uh, to take uh, to deal with our sins. But why did he do that? Well, the scriptures say, Colossians 3 says that he did that so that we might have his righteousness. In fact, that we might be clothed in his righteousness. And what that means is that we might be clothed in his very character. That we might grow and change. And you know what it is like to have somebody put a warm robe over you or warm blanket over you it's getting cold maybe some of us are, are experiencing that now there's nothing better there's nothing that feels more warm there's nothing that makes you feel like you're more cared for or loved and when the care the clothes of christ are draped over your shoulders those are royal clothes those are regal clothes those are clothes befitting a king and Jesus is such a king that despite our brokenness, despite the pain that we cause in the world, he loves us so dearly. He's committed to clothing us despite our poverty with his own clothes. And Colossians 3 tells us what those clothes are like. It describes his clothes as those of kindness and compassion, of humility, 
of gentleness and of patience. And when you wear those clothes, you become what you wear. Not only do you feel it on the outside, but by the power of the spirit, he makes it true on the inside. See, God sees you to the bottom. And therefore, you're utterly secure to confess the truth of who, uh, your own brokenness. Martin Luther says, sin boldly. And what that means is, when you come to confession, don't play around. Don't, don't beat around the bush. Don't hedge your bets. Tell them exactly how you feel. Tell them exactly where you're broken. Don't mince words. Sin boldly. Because as you're doing that, he is putting his robe over you. That's his love, his faithfulness, his commitment. You can rest in it. You can be secure in that. And if you've had that experience, how are you going to walk through this world? You're going to walk through this world as a king who has been crushed. You're going to have the robes of the king on you, but you know inside how you got those robes. They are not yours. They're borrowed. And therefore, you walk through this world with humility and confidence. And you're a blessing to the people who have been a blessing to you. And when people come to you with their own brokenness, you are willing, ready, and able to listen, to hear their story, and to say, come, tell me more, sin boldly, because I know a king who can deal with your sin. I know a king who can deal with the problems that you have. And he promises to see you through to the end. Listen, New York, we all know that you, Monday through Friday, there is no place that you can sin boldly. There's no place that you can, you can confess your life without somebody uh, either at your workplace, around you, in your relationships, just ready to crush you, to turn you into dust. Church, Christian community is a place where you can come and you can just be as you are. You won't be condemned you'll be comforted by the God who gives us comfort. So, do you know the goodness of God? Do you know the goodness of this God? Do you, do you believe that he's so good or do you wish him to be so good that you're willing to reimagine life here in the city? I am. Uh, I invite you to consider that this God too. Uh, let's stand and confess as a church. Let's stay in repentance so that we know our sin, just, not just ours, but our, those of our ancestors, and we can turn away from it in those places that hurt people and uh, reimagine a whole new life here and, and know that we're secure in the love of a God who clothes you in robes of righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we confess that our coldness towards you, you comes out of just simply uh, ignoring of your beauty. Lord, um, and when we do that, Lord, we recognize that, uh, that we, we are deprived of your compassion, your humility, your gentleness, your warmth, and your joy. Would you, Lord, would you uh, help us learn these things? I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.